Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is French Orthodox theologian Elizabeth Barisigel. Now, I have to warn you, listeners up front, that this is the topic of my dissertation. And normally, when someone tries to talk to you about their dissertation, you should go running in the opposite direction as fast as possible. But I promise you, this is going to be a good one. It's actually a pretty good story, both how I got to know about her and what I uncovered in the process of my research on her. But my discovery of her actually has a backstory, and you won't be surprised to hear that it has something to do with my theologian dad. So, dad, why don't you tell us how our family became acquainted with Eastern Orthodoxy in the first place, which is what led to this felicitous discovery. Yeah, but first I have to have a chuckle and say the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree, because I've never talked about my doctoral dissertation with anybody since the day it was over and done with. (laughs) Well, I think then it's exactly the opposite, Dad. I inflict my dissertation on all kinds of people. Uh, Well, I think that yours was qualitatively better than mine. So I think the, the fact that uh, you warn people to run the other way when someone wants to talk about a doctoral dissertation is what I was referring to. Oh, I see. Well, let's say I'm a dwarf sitting on the shoulder of a giant here. So. Well, I don't know about that. Anyway, in the, in the 1980s, I uh, was very much interested in Yaroslav Pelikan, who had published a five-volume history of Christian doctrine. Now, Pelican was a Slovak-American Lutheran, and so I had all sorts of connections with him through that uh, angle. And as I studied Pelican's, uh, and I had read Adolf von Harnock's History of Doctrine too, and it was in many ways Pelican was a rejoinder to Harnock. Uh, but what I really learned from Pelican was a great appreciation for the obscure and in the West almost forgotten tradition of Eastern Orthodoxy. Ironically, as Pelican became disgusted with American Lutheranism at the end of his life, he converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. He famously said, when the Missouri Synod becomes Baptist and the ELCA becomes Methodist, I'm going Orthodox. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yes. And uh, Yes, he was not the only one to depart and discuss, too, but we'll save that for another time. That's right. My uh, uh, attraction to Eastern Orthodoxy thus was mediated by Pelican scholarship, and I was reading theologians like Alexander Schmemann, uh, Timothy Ware, John Mayendorf, and John Baer, uh, all of whom I found enormously instructive and curiously uh, simpatico to my own uh, increasing interest in the Christology of Martin Luther. Well, when you were with us the first year in Slovakia in 93-94, we uh, organized a seminar on the ecumenical dialogue between the Lutheran Church and the Orthodox Church, to which a number of luminaries from the United States came and joined us. But among them was uh, Michael Plekon. Now, I'll just say a little bit about Michael, and I think then you can take over from there. Michael was on my editorial team at Lutheran Forum in the 1980s. Uh, He was a a Uniate Catholic by birth who converted to Lutheranism under the influence of Peter Berger, who was his doctor father, when he was studying Soren Kierkegaard. And so Michael Plekon had an enormous existential interest in the Lutheran Orthodox dialogue uh, because he was, like Pelican, beginning to feel some deep discomfort with the directions in which American Lutheranism was going. So he was an enthusiastic participant at this uh, Slovak-based seminar on the Lutheran Orthodox dialogue at which you served as a... um, a gopher and assistant and uh, hanger-on and participant as to what level you could. 
Yeah, that's right. And uh, um, Michael Plekon is still a good friend of both of ours. Hey there, Michael, if you're listening uh, and has written a lot of uh, really great books since then, um, especially on 20th century Orthodox figures who really were what I think ultimately drew him into Orthodoxy, his great appreciation for them. So um, so where my story picks up from here is that... Um, Right. I also became friends with Michael during this seminar and stayed in touch with him over the years. And of course, uh, mom and dad, you guys were back in Slovakia while I was in college in the U.S., so I didn't have a whole lot of uh, places to land stateside between my Slovak sojourns. So I, a couple times I ended up at Michael's house and stayed with his lovely family. And um, anyway, so we, we stayed in touch. And then I got to the end of my um, senior year of college. I was a theology major. I had no idea what I was going to do with it, but I was absolutely certain the one thing I I didn't want to do with it is become a pastor. Like that was completely anathema. I'm not really sure, Dad, why I was so dead set <laughs> against it. It's not like I had a negative experience of growing up in a pastor's family or perception of your ministry particularly, but I just knew that is not what I wanted to do. And so the I had ac- this kind of ac- feeling like... Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The acorn does not fall far from the tree. I had exactly <laughs> the same attitude when I graduated from college. I was only going to Seminex in order to have solidarity with the exile and to study the Bible before I went on to do a PhD in philosophy. That was, I was never going to be a pastor either. So go ahead with your story. You know, I never heard that story before, Dad. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, see, I had an out that you didn't, because at some point I realized, logically, if I was opposed to the ordination of women, then I couldn't possibly be a pastor. So I kind of um, dallied with that idea for a while. But then what flipped me, oddly enough, was one of my um, college mentors one time remarking to me that I was the only reason he still believed in the ordination of women. And mm. I was utterly appalled by that because my uh, my mentors otherwise were very consistent and principled thinkers. So to make an exception for me was clearly wrong. But secondly, I was like, wait a minute, are all women so extremely terrible that I am the only valid in in the entire category, that was pretty disturbing too. So um, anyway, I, I guess I must have been talking to, to Michael Blecon about this. And he said, well, look, um, oh, and I should add the other detail is that one of the reasons why the ordination of women was kind of frowned upon in my environment is because there was very friendly relations between Lutherans and Catholics at my college, which of course is not a bad thing in itself. But I did hear more than once the basic notion that, well, if only we didn't ordain women, there would be be no obstacle to reunion with Rome. And I was like, really? After 500 years and some pretty substantive arguments, you're going to lay this all on the women, huh? <laughs> so, um... <laughs> So I, uh, after mentioning this to Michael, he said, hey, look, I've got exactly the person you need to read. She's not Protestant or a Catholic. She's Orthodox. Uh, she's a woman. She's a theologian. She is super old already. <laughs> and so she's not fighting for her place in the world anymore, but knows it. And um, she came around in favor of the ordination of women in principle in the Orthodox Church. And so she'll be arguing kind of in a whole different plane than where the crossfire is taking place in uh, your school. So I was very intrigued by that. So he sent me the book. It was called The Ministry of Women in the Church, pretty straightforward by Elizabeth Bercy-Gell and this kind of um, independent publication of a tiny Orthodox publishing house in California, which I think has since been folded into St. Vladimir's um, Theological Seminary Press. Um, But I read it and it was such a breath of fresh air. She just kind of like cleared my head of all the clutter because... um, she looked to scripture, the church fathers, and the tradition of orthodox theology to assess the question, and um, and she knew feminist thought and found it useful in its insights, but not... Um, constitutive in its ability to decide the issue for the Christian church. And that's pretty much where I found myself, too. I was open to seeing where things had, you know, gone wrong, which, you know, we're sinners, this happens, and there are structural elements to that between men and women. But I never felt like building a foundation on a feminist theory would work for me, and I needed to have some, you know, more, uh, you know, biblical, scriptural, theological basis for doing so. And she did it, and I found her argument really compelling. So uh, that kind of solved the issue for me. And yes, inevitably, I became a pastor. It always happens. God has such a funny sense of humor. Ha ha ha. Here's a whale. (laughs) Go to Nineveh. Um, (laughs) Anyway, but (laughs) but then I I, uh, 
got to my final, uh, you know, finishing up my PhD and, um, you know, you got to write a topic. And I stupidly at first thought I would write on Luther and a um, very kindly elder Luther scholar named Carl Fried Freilich took me aside and said, dear Sarah, do you want to graduate in 10 years or do you want to get this over with now? I said, well, I'd like to get done sooner. And he said, don't do a Luther dissertation, for heaven's sake, do something else. <laughs> so I said, uh, all right. And uh, yeah, and then I recalled Elizabeth Bercigel, who, oh, I should mention that I actually did manage to meet in the intervening years um, in Paris before she died in 2005. And uh, yeah. Uh, let me just tell all of you out there thinking about it, choose a, a topic on which no one has written the secondary literature except yourself for your dissertation and get it done in a year. That is the way to do a dissertation. <laughs> it's a union card, right? Not not a statement on your uh, identity in life and in the world. Life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> well, um, tell us a little bit about Bear Sajal's story. What What's her personal odyssey? Um, well, she's actually really quite interesting in, in her own right anyway. She was born in uh, Alsace, in Strasbourg, where you know I ended up living for eight years when I worked at the Institute for Ecumenical Research. Her father was um, a German Lutheran, and her mother was a Bohemian Jew. She didn't actually know her mother was a Jew until she was in her teens, because she was very assimilated and only um, said uh, privately her prayers on the Day of Atonement every year, but otherwise didn't participate in any kind of active Jewish religious life. And, um, they were distantly related to the Sigmund Freud family. And very tragically, all of her Bohemian relatives were executed during the Nazi regime. Um, Bercigel herself, by then married, had to flee with her children to Western France and keep a very low profile during the war. So nobody would find out that she was, you know, ethnically Jewish on in the maternal line that certainly would have um, sent her to the camps as well. Um, but her father was, um, I think he had studied theology originally and under the influence of, uh, is it Strauss? Is he one of the... Um, the uh, early historical Jesus guys. Right, yeah, David Strauss, yeah. David Friedrich Strauss, I think, yeah. Yeah, that's the one. And I think he pretty much lost his faith. But when Elizabeth was born, he had her baptized. Um, but she had she wasn't really brought up in the church at all either. But then in her teens, she came under the influence of some uh, really impressive reformed youth pastors. This was kind of the rise of the world Christian youth movement. And it was through their ministrations that she became a Christian in, uh, in you know, consciously and by, by choice and conviction. Um, and that that eventually got her to the University of Strasbourg's theological faculty, where she was not the first, but among the first women to um, to take a degree in theology. And so it was while she's there in the 1920s. So she was born in 1905. Um, Sorry, 1907. She was born in 1907. In the 1920s, she was um, at the University of Strasbourg, and she met a number of uh, both Romanians who studied um, in French because Romanian and French are both Romance languages. They could do that. and um, But also a number of Russian emigres, so people who were still fleeing from the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. And of course, they were all Orthodox. And um, she just became friends with them and became very moved by their... Um, especially by their ecclesiology. So apparently she'd inherited a very kind of rigid understanding of, of a church life and structure, um, which seems very funny to me now because people tend to think that Protestantism is very loosey-goosey and open and orthodoxy is the one with the super rigid uh, bishop structure. But she perceived it very differently. And I think it was really this um, communal focus um, that was really transformative to her. So she ended up spending a year in Paris so she could study more closely with um, orthodox um, emigre teachers there. And um, under during that time, she met a priest named Love Gillet. He was French, a uh, Catholic priest originally, but he ministered to Russian emigres. And in the process, he himself became Orthodox. Um, and so he was, so this is a, a relevant point, he was not baptized, but chrismated Orthodox when he joined the Orthodox Church. And so when Elizabeth finally decided she also wanted to be Orthodox, he chrismated her, he did not rebaptize her. And at the time that was, well, sometimes still now, but that was a pretty big deal to insist that her baptism was valid, but that chrismation, uh, which is anointing with oil, um, Lutherans, if they do it at all, tend to do it. Well, sometimes after baptism, but more often with confirmation. 
But that was kind of the sacrament of reception into the Orthodox Church. Um, and it was only afterwards, sometimes people get this part wrong, that she ended up marrying a Russian Orthodox herself. But it wasn't because she got married that she became Orthodox. She did that on her own steam. Was there anything lacking in her Protestantism that motivated her? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I've had some Orthodox women themselves ask me and even say, like, are you sorry that Elizabeth became Orthodox? And I said, no, I'm really glad that you got to have her. She was, you know, she's great. I'm fine for that. I think what she really... um, what I have gathered, and this is, I talked to a, my colleague, um, Elizabeth Parmentier, who was a, um, used to be a, a professor in Strasbourg. She's in Geneva now, I think. Um, but she sort of was looking at the the curriculum and focus of the University of Strasbourg at that time. And I think it was about as dry bones liberal Protestantism as you could possibly hope for. I mean, there was no there was no Luther being studied for sure. It was not confessional in orientation. It was very dry history of religions, historical Jesus kind of stuff. Um, no spiritual life, as far as I can tell. Um, it was still hard for her, though. I mean, she, you know, she was really attracted to orthodoxy. She loved the literature. She loved the spiritual writings and so forth. But um, because of the um, very reduced number of available young men for the pastorate after World War I, she actually was asked by the Reformed leaders if she would be a lay pastor to a tiny Reformed congregation in the, the Vosges Mountains in Alsace. Um, and they actually knew she was already Orthodox at that point, uh, but they didn't care. <laughs> That's how, how laid back they were about theological standards of any kind. And so for eight months, she was um, she preached. She never did any sacraments um, and uh, visited people, did confirmation. By her own account, she preached greatly on church as the living community of believers in Christ and the importance of this communal element. Um, but eventually, some of her um, Orthodox mentors said, you can't do this. <laughs> You're either on our team or theirs, so make up your minds. And um, so she left it. But, you know, interestingly, this is really weird. At the time, the Reformed Church would allow women to be lay pastors only if they were single. If they were married, they couldn't even be lay pastors, and which I find utterly bizarre. Like, since when have the Reformed ever been big on uh, celibacy requirements for ministry? But uh, anyway, that's obviously long since ended. Um, so I think it was she, I, I think she actually found the dogmatic tradition of the Christian church and orthodoxy that had simply been deleted from the record in the Protestantism of her time. Yeah, I think that's probably... Uh an accurate sketch of the pictures in Alsace-Lorraine in the 1920s and 30s, right, where uh, the most famous theologian to come out of Strasbourg was Albert Schweitzer, uh, who wrote The Quest of the Historical Jesus, a famous documentation of the failure of the 19th century to found faith on a historical Jesus for a variety of reasons, and the shipwreck uh, of faith on the discovery as Schweitzer concluded his book uh, that Jesus was an apocalyptic nut who threw himself on the wheel of fortune in order to force God's hand, but the wheel turned and crushed him. And that was Schweitzer's kind of farewell to the Christian faith, that conclusion of the quest of the historical Jesus. So he went on to develop his humanist philosophy, which he lived lived out in his mission to the Belgian Congo. But if that was the kind of Protestantism Elizabeth was uh, experiencing, I think you could call it a, a dry desert spiritually, huh? Oh, yeah. I don't blame her at all. <laughs> in fact, you know, I, I don't think it's even particularly meaningful to to talk about her conversion as if she was departing one confessional tradition for another. I mean, I've probably read nearly everything she ever wrote. And the only thing I ever found her to say about the Protestantism, and it's always just Protestantism, it's never Lutheran reformed, anything more specific. The only thing she got from it and talks about is freedom of conscience. I've never once seen her say anything about justification by faith or the Lutheran doctrine of the sacraments, any confessional references. I don't think she ever read Luther. So it's not like, you know, uh, some people make uh, conversions that are definitely, I'm rejecting this confessional tradition and taking up this other. But I, I think, like you said, she left the desert for greener pastures and good for her. Yeah. All right. So like, all right, let's move on. Tell us now about 
um, the basic contours of Bersajal's mature theology. Right. So what's really interesting is that this topic about the ordination of women, for which she's most famous, did not arise in her life until she was almost 70 years old. So it was by no means like the obsessive focus of her whole life. So when she um, when she became Orthodox, she did, did a master's degree in Berlin on Orthodox hagiography. And she she uh, sketched out in her thesis, which got published, what is still kind of considered the, the typology of Russian saints. Um, and it's very telling her biographer Olga Lasky says how interesting it is that her first theological undertaking as an as an orthodox was a topic virtually unknown in protestantism namely hagiography the study of the saints and so you know and then when she was able to um move uh, back to France and you know when the war was over and things settled down um she kept really a close um relationship with the orthodox thinkers in Paris uh, she became a co-editor of the journal Contact um contacts, um, which was an attempt to have a common ground for discussion among the ethnically divided jurisdictions of orthodoxy in France. So like, as we know so well in America, like all the different ethnic groups would um, come into to Paris fleeing or emigrating, but then they would be under the jurisdiction of the church back home. So there would be multiple orthodox churches with no relationship to each other, even though they were physically very close, they're all in Paris or something. Um, and so this was a place for them to kind of talk talk out their their issues and try to forge common ground and, you know, entertain the possibility of creating a French Orthodox Church and under whose jurisdiction these are enormously uh, Byzantine arguments. And there's a reason why we use that word Byzantine. <laughs> so, um, and she was really interested in ecumenism. The ecumenical movement was rising at the time. And I think having come from a Protestant background, she was really eager to improve understanding between uh, Orthodox and Protestants. I think she did some stuff with Catholics, but not as much. Um, and so, yeah, she and she did eventually did a dissertation on a Russian um, theologian from the 19th century called uh, Alexander Bukharev, who, uh, and this is interesting, he actually was a monk who became disenchanted with the um, structure and power and teaching of the church and laicized and married and uh, got tarred as a Lutheran as a result for reasons you can easily guess. Um, but at the time, there were civil penalties for leaving the monastery. So he lived and died in penury, but um, left behind uh, you know a theological record of his whole spiritual process. He's still pretty much unknown. So she, I think her work on him in French is like the only uh, Western study ever done of this man. So anyway, she's she's really in the both um, digging deep into the tradition and at the same time really going with the currents of the times with the, the growing ecumenical movements and the, these, uh, you know, um, uh, attempts to dialogue within the Orthodox Church, the student movements, and then eventually she gets wind of the growing women's movements, especially under the auspices of her friend Paul Evdokimov, who uh, <laughs> he, he's a quite a piece of work himself. He was also a an emigre Russian writer and. Um, he basically perceived what he, he, in his terms, the misogyny of the Orthodox churches and really wanted to counteract it. And the way he did that was by writing a couple of books that are these, um, how shall we say it? Uh, glowing accounts of the goddess on the pedestal and how wonderful women are and how terrible men are and woman's serenity and her ability to transform ma man from his violence and cold heartedness through her prayerful centeredness. Um, it's oh dear. <laughs> it's a, a bit of a silly. Yeah, it's it was an overcorrection, let's say, shall we say, yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, what what Elizabeth appreciated about him was that he was saying, you know, women are women. Uh, well, he probably said w women are women. She would have said women are women. And um, they are valuable and God created them and loves them and has granted them, you know, baptism and chrismation and the Holy Supper. And therefore, they should not be just on the margins or excluded, much less treated as something unclean and unworthy in the church. And I think that was what really uh, spoke to her when she first started exploring this topic. So then what took her really into this um, issue about women, which would occupy the last 30 years of her life, is that in 1976, incidentally, the year of my birth, um, she was called for the first time to speak about the question of women in the Orthodox Church at a um, 
World Council of Churches funded event for Orthodox women in a convent in Romania. As far as anyone knows, this is the first time in all of history that there was a special conference just for Orthodox women. And she gave the keynote address and she, you know, kind of went over a whole range of, of issues related to women in the church. Her, her attitude is basically positive. She talks about Evdokimov. Um, she encourages women to, you know, step up and um, do their part in the church and in the healing of the world after the terrible wars and all that. Um, and then at the very end, she just kind of like lightly touches on the issue of the ordination of women. And um, she says basically, well, um, in orthodoxy, the priest is an icon of Christ and Christ was a male. Therefore, the priest must be male. Um, so women can't be priests. However, uh, we see that Protestants are now ordaining women. We shouldn't just dismiss them out of hand as heretics. And we should think deeply on what it means to be an icon of Christ. And she kind of leaves it there. Yeah, you know, that's interesting, Sarah, that the icon argument has always struck me as rather odd because it the the of course Jesus was a male and in representational art he's depicted as a male uh, but whenever did that masculinity become uh, some kind of essential feature uh, to his representation I think you have all sorts of interesting icons, representations, graphic representations of Christ that tell story that illustrate the gospel narrative. But where in the gospel narrative is his masculinity or his maleness, even not gender, but just biological sex? Where is that ever uh, uh, deemed something essential to the telling of the story? It's a fact. It's a historical fact. And it certainly has some kind of limited significance. But to make maleness the essential element in the representation of Christ strikes me uh, as very odd. I don't know. What do you think? Well, no, I think so, too. And what well, this is really interesting. What Elizabeth Bereshigel found as she started digging deeper into this issue is that nobody virtually had talked about this in the entire history of the church. There are basically three pre-modern comments on Jesus' masculinity to be found. I don't have them off uh, the tip of my tongue here, but um, you know, people can read my book and find out what they are. And they're they're hardly conclusive either. They tend to be more like observations. Like well, one says, um, never in the history of the world has a woman served God as a priest. Um, well, if you say never in the history of the world has God taken flesh that... You know, kind of disrupts the uh, the essentiality of that particular argument. And um, if I remember correctly, I think Thomas Aquinas's main argument is that um, it's not fitting for a woman to receive a tonsure because that would look bad, you know, for her hair to be cut that way. So therefore, <laughs> she can't be a priest. Right. You know, it, it's really weird. So there's very little on the topic. And then uh, when I was looking at some ecumenical documents on the question of priesthood, when women are not a part of the discussion, actually, Anglicans, Orthodox, and Catholics do not call upon the iconic argument in any respect to talk about what it means to be a priest of Christ. It actually only comes up when suddenly women are there. So it somehow it was just kind of there at hand, uh, floating in the ether, and suddenly it was claimed as this being like a uh, an ancient argument. But it's not. All there, the the only thing that's ancient is silence and the fact, the obvious fact that only men had been ordained. But as far as I can tell, there was no reflection on why that should be the case. Um, it seems actually it was more, the argument was more that the disciples were male than that Christ was male. So that's that's kind of interesting that the, then the argument gets shifted away from the disciples over to Christ as being the critical issue. I'm thinking about this on the, seat, on the fly here, uh, but as you're talking, it occurs to me, maybe this is a very Lutheran reading of the whole issue of iconography, uh, but the Gospels do not give us graphic descriptions of Jesus at all. And that means no. <laughs> that they the, the gospel narrative allows every listener, auditor, slash reader to construct an image uh, in their own minds of what they're hearing. 
And so it's what you're hearing that's normative. It's the gospel narrative. And that's going to generate a vast variety of mental images or, or representations uh, uh, that will be as various as the various people listening to the gospel story. And that's okay. Uh, and it's also okay then uh, in a derivative way to graphically image uh, for us in graphic arts the, the gospel narrative. But what's normative is the telling and hearing of the narrative, not the multiform representations we will make of it. Well, I think that is a very Lutheran reading, but I approve of it. <laughs> oh, thank you. No surprise. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that is very telling. And I mean, you know, there's been a lot, lot of talk, especially since the Da Vinci Code, about why Jesus was apparently celibate. Uh, but I mean, it, it seems to me actually in reflection on this is that his his maleness is simply a fact, but it's, it, let's say, its expression is de-emphasized. It's not of, of central interest. If there's any particular... Um, let's say, a value placed on his maleness, it seems to me it has to be in the uh, in the Old Testament precedent of, you know, to us, a son is born from Isaiah or the sacrificial, the sacrificial animals, though I will point out there are female sacrificial animals. You don't have to have only a male um, sacrificial animal. There are quite valuable female ones as well. Um, I, I have to say my own kind of um, utterly extra canonical gloss on that is just to play out the thought experiment if the um, in incarnate child of God had been a female person rather than a male person, there is no way said person would not have been severely sexually abused as part of the uh, trial, arrest, and execution. And to have that sacralized, I think, is... um. I mean, to have a cross sacralized is is harsh enough, but um, I, I personally am glad that that was did not become part of the holy story. Yeah, right. Uh, but this is this is all purely speculative, and I, I think what um, Elizabeth herself uh, finally came to realize is that the maleness of Christ is there. It's a fact. It has some in interpretive value, especially um, where the, the I think there's Theodore the Studite. He's an early uh, patristic theologian. He talks about Christ as sacrificial animal in that tradition. Um, but it's really not an object of anyone's interest or discussion. It is almost a purely 20th century thing. And it obviously is in response to, and this is again where I think the really relevant point is, in response to the possibility of women having genuinely public roles. So again, this this is right. where I'll sound very stereotypically Lutheran. But I think the issue, as I see it, is really the difference between public and private roles. Um, and then the mass entrance of women into public roles in a way they never had before, partly because of industry, partly because of contraception, partly because of changed voting and property rights. So suddenly you simply have a possibility for women to lead in other domains of life um, and not only be mothers, and nothing wrong with being only a mother, but the fact that there's an option not to be only a mother is a genuine novum of the, mostly of the 20th century. And so that kind of forces the issue before, you know, before before how, just put it in a very baldly, how could a woman be a priest or pastor before when she is always pregnant or nursing? I mean, that's what a married woman would have been. Right. Yeah, I think, and that also helps us to put into context or perspective uh, the change in the public status of women in the last century as very much a product of capitalism, industrialization, and the global economy. Uh and I think we can naturally celebrate uh, the progress for women that's been uh, manifest in this, but also acknowledge its historical relativity and contextualize it and also recognize some of the dark side of these changes. But that's going way off topic. Let's get back to Bear Sejal. I think you uh, made a big deal about her Trinitarianism as uh, the background for her thinking, uh, her innovative thinking on the role of women in the church. Could you talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. So what the I think the most interesting thing I found in the the process of writing the dissertation is that although about five years after the um, the keynote address um, in Romania, um, she changed her mind publicly in favor of the possibility of ordaining women. And I should say she always was simply in favor of the possibility. She was never an advocate or or activist or anything. She simply wanted it to be raised up as a possibility. Um, she then changed her mind again five years later, not against the ordination of women, but against her initial reasons for accepting the ordination of women. And here's why. So in her, her first move toward the ordination of women, two things happened. One is she recognized the iconic argument was invalid. Um, not only for the reasons that we've discussed, but more um, importantly, she said she realized in the liturgy, the priest is not only Christ to the congregation, he's also the congregation to Christ. So he speaks in both directions. That's the whole point of the priestly office is to be this, um, uh, I don't know, like traffic signal, <laughs> you know, of yeah. uh, communicating in both directions, upwards and downwards. And so if you are going to insist on this kind of aligning masculinity with the voice of Christ to the people and femininity with the voice of the receptive souls to Christ, then the priest is actually that feminine role as well. So for her, that that kind of washed out the whole iconic arguments. Um, not to mention the fact that to say that um, a woman is not an icon of Christ is to call into question everything about women's Christianity full stop. Um, as Gregory of Nazianzus famously said, what is not assumed is not healed. Therefore, logically, Christ's body had to assume all that is female as well, despite lacking a uterus. And therefore, you cannot invalidate a woman's ability to be an icon of Christ if she's truly saved by him. But her second um, reason for turning toward the ordination of women, and I think this was, again, in the context of kind of 60s and 70s feminism and uh, World Council of Churches things, is she dallied for a, night, a while with the idea of specific feminine charisms, that women are distinct kinds of beings. She's clearly getting this from Evdokimov, who have distinct feminine gifts. And so the church is actually cutting out about 50 percent of its potential spiritual gifts by preventing women from exercising them. And um, she even talks a couple times rather loftily about a new emerging feminine civilization that's focused on love and care and children and life and not on domination and, you know, all these bad things that men do. Um, you know, so far as that goes, it's it's fine. But um, I think she realized fairly quickly that that was also a fiction. <laughs> and uh, um, But more importantly, as she kept going back to scripture, she was like, you know, there is actually no assignment of spiritual gifts or roles based on being male or female at all. It's just not there. Um, if anything, the spirit blows where the spirit wills and calls certain individual people to do acts of service. And you see both men and women named there. There are lots of women named at the end of Romans, for example, um, and they do their thing. And But it doesn't seem to be particularly about there being male or female one way or another. So she becomes increasingly uneasy with her own argument about feminine charisms, even though you can see in a just in a very practical way that if you let's say if you have a a workforce and by definition you exclude half of the workforce, um, you're going to be excluding half of the the gifts, talents, skills available as well. So there's a kind of a practical side to that, but she finds it hard to actually make a spiritual or theological argument for feminine charisms, so-called. So then what happens is as she is wrestling with this issue, she goes back to Vladimir Lasky. So I'm not going to go too deeply into this. Uh, listeners, I refer you to our episode from last year on what is a person where we talked about this um, at greater length. But basically what she found in Lasky and... Um, and this is what I really developed in the last chapter of my book about her, is the I, uh, the basic idea that what it means to be in the image of God is to be a person who is an instance of but not reducible to one's own nature. And so... Um, the, the classic, so this is kind of funny. So the classic Orthodox critique of Western Roman Latin um, Trinitarianism is that the usia of God, so like the substance or stuff of God, is given priority over the persons of God, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's kind of like first you have God and then God kind of divides into three units like an amoeba splitting off. <laughs> and then, and from, from their godness, uh, they derive these three particular 
particular identities that is normally called modalism as a Trinitarian heresy. And in in, uh, Orthodox judgment, that's where Western Trinitarianism generally ends up. And so the Orthodox argument that Lasky is reiterating and then applying to uh, anthropology is to say that in Trinitarian thinking, the persons are the thing. Uh, There is no nature of God apart from the persons. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist, and they are all God, but they are primarily God in their distinct fatherness, sonness, and spiritness, not not as um, just... uh, break-offs from the lump of of divine Plato that then becomes something distinct. And so she then what Lasky does is applies this to people and says that that human beings also that they're you you can conceptualize such a thing as human nature and you can talk about it in scientific ways like DNA or whatever. But the fact is there is no human nature as such available. Um, there's only people available, individual persons available. And from those individuals, you are able to conceptualize what human nature is. So what Elizabeth does basically is takes this into the domain of talking about what it means to be male and female. And we can just allot that there is something conceptually challenging for us to say that um, males and females are clearly unmistakably both human, but they are not identical. There are, you know, physiological differences. Those have certain hormonal and chemical effects we can generally perceive just by looking at a person, whether they are one or the other. We generally want to know and are a little bit um, confused if we can't tell right off. But uh but, you know, there's this two-ness to the oneness. And so the way that what Elizabeth saw is that some of these attempts to figure out how to think this through on the orthodox side basically wanted to go like Evdokimov and essentialize women into woman so that the real category of reality was woman and her nature. And therefore, every woman individually was simply um, a reiteration of this one nature. There was no distinct personhood to her. You know, and logically, you'd have to say that about men, too, though, of course, it doesn't get said. (laughs) And so what she basically then says is to think about women correctly is to think about women as persons, which means namely unique iterations of a nature, which for women includes female nature and for men includes male nature, for both includes human nature, but never to be reduced to that. And so the error she sees in some in the very um, conservative Orthodox who um, were arguing, you know, so the, the arguments against the ordination of women started emerging. They all basically go down to this, that women are actually just women. They are pure iterations of a nature, but they're not persons. And so she's encouraging us to look at the level of the person rather than the nature. Very good. That's a, a great summary of um, Lasky and then also of uh, Bersajal's appropriation and application of the distinction between nature and person to this issue. A couple of thoughts, Sarah. Um, This is, in much of the contemporary postmodern literature, this is referred to as essentialism. And essentialism is the idea, the doctrine, that there is a nature, there is an essence, essentialism essence. There is an essence in nature or synonyms. So there is an essence of woman, and there's an essence of man, uh, or there's an essence of human being. You know, how you chop these things up and classify them is another rabbit hole down which we don't want to run right now. But the, the fundamental point here is that your nature assigns you a um, normative task to fulfill your potential qua according to your nature. So if your nature is to be a woman, that means like an acorn is supposed to become an oak tree, a girl is supposed to become, now fill in the blank, what would fulfill her nature? Well, you would think maternity, uh, being wed, being uh, maternity, nurturing, raising children, something like that. And that would be an example of an essentialistic reduction in which which the question of the personhood, the individual historical personhood of that particular girl becoming a woman becomes reduced to a mandate of nature behind the old cliche about keeping women barefoot pregnant and in the kitchen. 
That's essentialism. And that's, I think, repudiated in a lot of uh, uh, literature nowadays, postmodern literature, for these very good reasons, or at least criticized for these very good reasons. If that's the problem with essentialism, how is this theological anthropology that focuses instead on personhood different from realizing a natural vocation? Well, I think what's interesting about it is that um, one of the the consequences of rejecting essentialism has been to go to another extreme that maybe denies the existence of a nature at all and wants human beings to be um, extreme sovereign creators of their own destiny, uh, remakers of their bodies, um, masters of their own, uh, you know, fates and captains of their own ship and so forth. I mean, it's funny to me as I was looking over this, how much actually the landscape has changed since she was writing where I, I mean, you still will find um essentializers, certainly, and probably more in, in the church. Um, but maybe they've gotten more essentialized because they're panicked at the sight of the utter denial of nature on the other side. And I think that's why I find this her her personhood um, approach through Lasky to be so helpful, because at no point does she ever deny nature. And it's, you know, just the sheer, first of all, biological fact that almost without exception, human beings are born clearly as males or females. And that, you know, it's not um, exhaustively determinative, like you said, in a mandating kind of way of what their life will be, but it does make a pretty big difference in, in how you will experience life, certainly how you'll experience sexuality, parenthood, um, and, you know, for good or for ill, how other people will regard you and your possibilities. And so I think what the what the personhood approach does is allow you to say, yes, I, I have this nature, um, but I am not reducible or identical to the nature. So it allows, I think, both the given of human experience because we we have I mean we're stuck with our DNA we didn't choose it and we didn't we didn't ask for the color of our skin or the fact that we need to eat and sleep there's so much unchosen and given about our reality just physiologically to say nothing about the kind of mental set that we're given but what that what the the person side of it does is say and yet there is of something like we can call freedom um, there is choice there are choices available there are real developments over the course of time, um, our, in our own historical reality, in the relationships that we form, and the experiences that we have, and the cultures we inhabit or visit, and so forth. So, to me, I just I find her her vision so much more. I just find it realistic, like a, a better portrait of what it actually is like to be a living human being in the world who is male or female and has to negotiate the world that way. Super, you know, I, and all of that ditto, ditto, um, exclamation points, asterisks. Yes, I agree. I love all of that. But what makes it a theological anthropology, and here you, you point out the, the secular dilemma, that this Western secular culture is in an uh, ignorant error of these Christian theological categories. And so you can either be, become an extreme existentialist and say there's no nature and accept the absurd fact that I have to make up the meaning of my own life. That makes you an existentialist. And the opposite is, and the fearful reaction against that is the essentialist who wants to insist that you are a nature and that your task in life is to realize your natural potential to, to which is a kind of a mandate over you, which then, of course, can be very oppressive for the reasons we've discussed. So, But what makes it a theological anthropology, it seems to me, and the reason why we want to lift up this possibility of, of being a person uh, is that each individual has, whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not, has a relationship with God, their creator. And whether they perceive the calling of God or not, they have the calling of God to become the person who lives their life from birthday to death day in his presence as a steward of his gifts and responsible to God uh, for the life that, uh, that is given to one as a gift for stewardship. It's that dr drama 
of a life lived in relationship to God that forms the deep structure of any human personal identity or biography. That's what I think we want to lift up in theological anthropology. And you see how that allows you to avoid the dilemma, shall we be existentialists or shall we be essentialists, and finds the, the, the golden way down the middle between those two deleterious extremes. Beautifully said, beautifully said. And, you know, what I think this finally then means for the question of ordination of women in any church, um, I realize that I don't really like the phrase ordination of women anymore because it seems like it's um, a, an abstract argument in favor of every single woman, um, let's assume assume we mean the, the Christian women, baptized women. Um, but that actually, I think, has never actually been the the argument. I think it'd be better to say uh, the possibility of the subset of female human beings being called upon by the Holy Spirit in order to serve in a public role in the church. Um, because ordinate, ordaining women is never ordaining every woman any more than ordaining men is ordaining every single male. And I also think this should make us ask the question of um, why exactly men can be ordained. <laughs> you know, there's Good, the, yes. again, the, uh, the age old fact of it having been done whenever ordination exactly started happening in the, rec- in the form we recognize it now. But, you know, that I, I think it, in a way, Elizabeth Barisigel solved these questions so much for me that I'm kind of bored with male female <laughs> questions now. Uh, I, I, I do get, you know, when I, I, you know, and I've had it pretty easy. I've only encountered a few men in my life who really ultimately desired my silence. Um, I've not been the victim of violence. I live in a church that, you know, I didn't have to fight for the ordination of women. So I don't want to like make it sound like it's no big deal or whatever. But um, I think where I'm most likely to get irritated now is just when the question or the focus is always in women and never on men. Uh, at the last Luther Congress, I said, you know, we talk about what Luther said about women, but do we ever talk about what Luther said about men? I'm pretty sure he hated men way more than he hated women. <laughs> and um, likewise, I um, a number of years ago, I wrote this kind of a... a I don't know if you'd call it a spoof or a parody. I called it the Epistle of Eutyche, in which I imagined it to be a correspondence between two abbesses who are discussing whether or not the Holy Spirit erred, or no, if, if the church erred in allowing men to carry the apostolic office and went through all the ways that men were treacherous and terrible in the scripture and in church history, and how hard it is to think of female heretics where there are lots of male heretics and all the other things men have done wrong, and um, you know, trying to puzzle out the legitimacy of male ordination. And I just, you know, it's just uh, raise one. If you want to raise a question about women, that's fine. But raise the question about men, too. That's kind of where I'm at now. And, you know, the other thing that needs to be thought about here is not whether women can be ordained, but the question ordained to what? What is Mm. the public? You wrote a good piece on this. Yes. What is the public ministry of Jesus Christ? And is that the ministry to which we're that's under discussion? Uh, I think vague discussions of women in leadership roles and that kind of thing simply import into the church secular understandings of leadership, management, corporate values, and so forth and so on that are very powerful in our society. But we have to ask in, in the church a very specific question. What is the pastoral ministry of word and sacrament? And what charisms does it uh, require? And what uh, attributes, personal and professional, are requisite to it? We don't ever talk about that anymore, you know, when, uh, mm, since mm. this uh, issue has been dominated by feminism and reactions against feminism. Uh, I think we've made it clear that that you and I, both uh, I, from the earliest days of my ministry, even in seminary, uh, decided that for good gospel reasons, uh, women should be uh, uh, permitted uh, uh, seminary education and considered for ordination. I've always supported that going back to the beginning of 40 years ago, you know, when I began in the ministry. Um, But I think the, like you've said, since those days, things have changed rather dramatically. 
And I would like to see a discussion get going about what is the pastoral ministry of Word and Sacrament? What is the ministry of Jesus Christ? Yeah, that's great. And I think we'll certainly take that up in a, a, a future episode. I guess what I, I would just like to <clears throat> say over the whole issue here is that to me, the there's kind of an inherent irony in talking about um, women's issues or advocacy, because generally the whole problem women experience is being regarded as woman and not as persons, right? I mean, like, generally speaking, misogyny or stereotyping or whatever is regarding every female you meet as simply this one mass woman and not her own person. But the problem is that in order to achieve ends in advocacy, you have to group together based on the fact that you are all women, <laughs> you know, and you have to say women, you know, us group of women, you know, demand or expect or ask or whatever for certain kinds of things. And I just I feel like there's never been sufficient um, attention to that very uh, that inherent paradox in the whole thing. And I have to say a lot of my life, I felt really alienated or unwelcome or just uninterested in various forms of women's advocacy, because it seemed to me that there was this kind of functioning concept of what a, a, you know, a true member of the sisterhood would um, believe and adhere to. And often I didn't. um, Being pro-life will kick you out of a lot of such things like that. Um, but, you know, there are other things as well, just stuff that didn't interest me. But then, you know, so there'd be a kind of ironic re-womanizing of women in that kind of advocacy. So, you know, when I, you know, it, it's necessary sometimes, generally, when women are treated uh, oppressively as women, but it can easily flip into its opposite and become a kind of um, controlling and disciplining of women by other women to toe the line in order to achieve an end that's determined to be correct for all women. I totally agree. In fact, I have a woman who's a theological friend, who she shall go unnamed, um, who confided in me that in her career, she has suffered the most from other women in theology who have accused her of being far too intellectual, far too scholarly, far too serious, just like a male right brain, is it right brain or left brain? Right brain male theologian. <laughs> and and how painful that has been to her. Now she is a the one the person I'm talking about is a very confident feminist and points out very vigorously how women have gotten the raw end of the deal throughout history in all sorts of ways. And I think this is simply a matter of, of historical fact and basic justice that we recognize these ways um, that in traditional cultures, women were, as you were saying, lumped together into this mass category that could be subordinated and devalued. And I think if that makes you a feminist, well, then count me, call me a feminist too, because I agree with that kind of analysis and consequent advocacy for greater justice. Great, great. Well, let me close this out now. We're about at time now with um, a charming little anecdote that I know you will appreciate because it's about your dad and my grandfather. But um, when I was uh, working at First Things um, right after college, I uh, very inconveniently was called into the ministry by the Lord, um, which the inconvenience was having Richard John Newhouse as my boss. That made for an awkward few months there. But anyway, I was actually far more concerned about how your dad was going to react to this. At this time, he was widowed, living alone in upstate New York, and I would go see him as often as I could. And so uh, the the visit I took after this uh, call experience, for what it's worth, happened. Um, I was really nervous because for the past year, every time I saw him, somehow, it was never me, he would always bring up how gals shouldn't be in the ministry. It was never women. It was always gals. <laughs> And, like, I don't know if he was, like, picturing, like, a blonde bimbo or, like, a butch feminazi or, like, I don't know what he had in mind. But anyway, gals shouldn't be in the ministry. So I was like, you know, all right, Sarah, man up here. <laughs> Tell your grandfather the truth. You're going to seminary in the fall, like it or not. And I still, I can't say, was extremely thrilled at the prospects. Um, but anyway, so I finally you know, took the long drive to upstate New York and, you know, said hello and sat down. We had dinner and we're talking. And I finally worked up the gumption to tell him what had happened and where I was going and what I thought I was called to do. And without missing a beat, he said, oh, that's great, Sarah. I've always thought you should be a minister. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what? What are you talking about? You're always like, gals shouldn't be ministers. And he went, ah, 
you know, if a woman wants to preach the word of God, who am I to stop her? And like, and that was it. It was just that was the that's end of you, it. That's what you call a felicitous inconsistency. Well, you know, but I think what it really showed me when I look back on it now is that he was thinking woman, like this nature of woman being yeah. pastor. But when he was actually confronted with a subset of women, namely me, a person that right. he knew, then all the problem was gone. And so it, uh, maybe a yeah, felicitous inconsistency, but I think a deeper truth it was at work there. Wonderful. Yeah. Great story. By the way, you should have mentioned that my father was a lifelong pastor. So I mean, he had a—he was coming from someplace. Ah, uh, yes, Th- that's right, that's right. Yes. Okay. Well, um, so that wraps it up for this episode. And next time we will be talking about the prophet Isaiah and the book named for him. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.